Well, howdy, Pastor Mark Driscoll here wanting to welcome you to my series on Ruth, The Big Little Love Story. We're going through the Cinderella story of the Old Testament in six weeks with two amazing characters, Ruth, a Moabite gal who was widowed, Boaz, an older, wealthy, affluent, single guy, they fall in love, get a little bad counsel from a gal named Naomi, and God works it all out so they can get married, have a baby named Obed, and through him would come another guy you might've heard about, his name is Jesus. You're gonna love this love story, and I thank you for your prayers, I thank you for your support and your gift of any amount as we get God's word out to God's whole world. Thanks a bunch, Pastor Mark out. Well, it's a great day. We get to start the book of Ruth, amen? Who's excited? Brand new book of the Bible. We love books of the Bible here at the Trinity Church. And today we start the favorite book of the Bible for my two daughters. So during the summers, I like to tell my kids, hey, pick a section or a book of the Bible, make it the place that you're gonna study all summer. Each of my daughters has studied this book in depth. And so if I share anything that's helpful, I wanna thank my daughters for allowing me to study with them because that's where honestly I've learned all the good stuff that's in this book. This is one of the best love stories. This might be the best little love story ever written in the history of the world. It's gonna take us six weeks to go through it and you're gonna hear about real life with real people who have real problems and get help from a real God. Anyone need some of that? Turn to Ruth chapter one. We're gonna jump right into the story and we learn about necessary endings and new beginnings and it begins with facing reality in Ruth chapter one, verses one through five. In the days, there we begin, when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. No food, everybody's hungry. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah, that's Israel, went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He moves his family. Uh, the story continues, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. Nice Klingon names. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, what? He died, she's a widow. And she was left with her two sons. Well, that's okay, they'll take care of her, right? These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years and both Malon and Kilion, what? Died. So that the woman, that is Naomi, was left without her two sons and her husband. For those of you who are note takers, five things. We got a free for all, a famine, failure, funerals, and then facing reality. It's gonna get worse before it gets better. The Bible is the most honest book that's ever been written. And this is one of the most honest pages in the most honest book. And it starts with a free for all. When it says that the period in which this occurs is the days of the judges. If you are in your Bible in Ruth, if you were just to flip back one page to the end of the book of Judges, here's how it explains the days of the judges. It says there was no king in that day and everyone did whatever they wanted. They did what was right in their own eyes. If you take Prison riot plus spring break plus Mardi Gras equals Hebrews gone wild. That's exactly what's going on in the days of the judges. It's absolute insanity. It's out of control. No one submits to God. They don't submit to parents. They don't obey the police. Nobody subjects themselves to any authority. They would call it freedom, but it leads to slavery and death. So there is a free for all. Number two, there is absolutely a famine. Now, most of us, we don't know what a famine is. We know what feasting is. We don't know what famine is. They are literally at the point of <clears throat> virtually starving to death. Uh, a famine has hit the land. And what city are they in? Bethlehem. What, what does Bethlehem mean? The house of bread. This is like 
and God's people are starving at Costco. You know something's gone terribly wrong when you're in the place that all the food is supposed to be and there's no food there. So Bethlehem is the house of bread. It's a flourishing place where crops grow, where people are fed, where God provides. And now all of a sudden God has restricted his provision. Now, sometimes you need to understand that, <clears throat> that when things happen, it's not necessarily that God is punishing you, but it is always good to ask that question. Is this a consequence for sin in my life? In this instance, it is a consequence of sin in their life. Everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes. They're not doing what is right in God's eyes. And as a result, God withholds his blessing from them in the form of them getting hungrier and hungrier and hungrier that at some point they would ask him, Lord, have we lived in a way that is displeasing to you? How can we return to you? How can we be right with you? Sometimes God leaves a little bit of pain to get our attention to prevent us from having even greater pain. So there's a free for all culturally, there is a famine and then there's a failure. First by the dad, his name is Elimelech, and then by the two sons, Malon and Kilion. Elimelech literally means God is my king, but he doesn't live like it. Some of you would say that Jesus is your Lord, but you don't live like it. He doesn't subject himself to the will of God. Instead, he walks away from the will of God. And so what Elimelech does, he makes a decision for his family. He realizes we are in Bethlehem with God's people in God's presence, but God is not providing. Over in Moab, it seems like there is a better economic climate. Maybe he had a job offer and a better opportunity. So what he chooses to do is move his entire family to Moab. Okay, is it a sin to move your family? No, God tells Abraham, another guy, move your whole family. The question is, did God want him to move his family? Did God call him to, ask his, to move his family? Did God ask him to move his family? And the answer is no. It's, it's, it's fine to move your family if that's what God calls you to do, but it's not fine to move your family if that's what God forbids you to do. And God had forbidden his people from moving to Moab. Now, you may ask, well, who are the Moabites? Well, they lived about 30 to 50 miles away. And they had their own religion. They didn't worship the God of the Bible. They worshiped a false God, a demon God named Chemosh. They practiced lots of sexual sin. These are very perverted, out of control, dangerous people. And the entire race comes from a man named Lot who had a lot of problems. He's back in like Genesis chapter 19. He's a relative of a guy named Abraham. And Lot has so many problems that here's what he does. He actually impregnates one of his own daughters. Okay? That whole race that comes from Lot and his daughter are called the Moabites. These are troubled people that have horrific family dynamics, lots of sexual sin, they worship a false God, and God's people are not to move to Moab, and they are not to marry those who are Moabites. It's forbidden by God. And so what we see here is that in moving his family, they are away from God's people and God's presence. All of God's people are in Israel. The, the temple, God's presence is in Israel. The synagogues, the, the Old Testament equivalent of the churches are in and around that area. Over in Moab, there's no church, there's no Bible teaching, there's no prayer, there's none of God's people. How many of you have been out of church for a while? They were out of church for 10 years, for 10 years. And here's Elimelech's failure. He provides for his family, but only financially. How many men are like that? A lot of us men would say, hey, I provide. I put food on the 
table. That's Elimelech. There was no food here. We moved here. I provided, I put food on the table. But you men need to know that it's not just food that we are to provide. It is community for our families so that our wives, if God is pleased enough to give us the gift of a wife, that she would have godly relationships and friendships with godly women, that our children would grow up having relationships with godly children and families, that if and when the day comes for our children to marry, that they could marry believers, that we would have a church for them to participate in where they could come into God's presence and be under God's teaching and, and be in relationship with God's people. Elimelech was a classic quasi-spiritual but not highly committed man who moved his family without thinking, where are we going to go to church? Who will we have as friends? Who will be my wife's prayer support? Who will be the guys that I do life with? Where will the relationships be? Who will my children grow up with? What will they learn about God? If and when the day comes for them to marry, who might they marry? He doesn't think of any of those things. Instead, he just moves his family, he puts bread on the table, but he doesn't put any other provision in their life. Elimelech is a failure. I'm gonna ask all the husbands and fathers now, please stand. If you're at the Trinity Church, I want you to know, all of us men, I'm a husband and a father. You husbands and fathers, you husbands and fathers, you husbands and fathers, it is our responsibility to lead our family. It is your responsibility and your responsibility and your responsibility to lovingly, humbly, generously, wisely, faithfully, consistently, diligently, biblically lead your family. Your children are your responsibility. Your wife is your responsibility. The well-being of your family, the flourishing of those with your last name is your responsibility. It's okay if the school helps you, but it's your responsibility. It's okay if the church helps you, but it's your responsibility. It is okay if other families help and serve, but it is your responsibility. Do you pray for your children? Do you pray with your children? Do you pray for your wife? Do you pray with your wife? Do you help your wife have relationships with godly women? Do you help your children have relationships with godly women? Are you the one who is setting the temperature in the home and leading the way for the family? I need you to know that when a woman converts statistically, her husband and children do not. When a man converts and walks with Jesus statistically, his wife and children do. You know why? Because God's word is true and you and I are the head of the home. That doesn't mean that we're the boss or the bully that we get to intimidate or domineer. It means we are to lovingly, humbly serve in the purposes of God and that we set the pattern and precedent for the rest of our family. If you're frustrated with your wife, let me tell you this, she's a garden, you're the gardener. If you're frustrated with the condition of your children, you are their first pastor. You have an opportunity and an honor to read the Bible with them, to pray with them, to choose relationships for them, to, to bring them into healthy, loving community. And so long as I have the honor of being your pastor here at the Trinity Church, I wanna call you men to this high calling. I want you to know that God the Holy Spirit wants to help you achieve humble, godly leadership for you and your family. For you men who have walked in wisdom and there is flourishing and fruitfulness in your family, I wanna say thank you on behalf of your family and the Lord Jesus. And I want you to be available to mentor, to love, to encourage, to befriend, to instruct and correct other men. For those of you men who have spent your life like a Limelech doing the minimum, 
having lip service for God, but not lifestyle with God, only making financial, but not spiritual provision for your family. I hope that this would be a warning to you as you see what happens to Elimelech and his two sons, and that this would be the day where there is a change in your family, where you become like a patriarch, and then your wife and children love God, love you, and follow in your example so that you're the first link in a long chain of people who love and serve the God of the Bible. You can do this. By God's grace, you can do this. No excuses. Elimelech had tons of excuses. Down economy, bottom fell out of my job, can't make ends meet, not my fault, things are out of my control. If you don't take care of your family, no one else will. If you don't lead your family, no one else will. If you don't enable your family to flourish, no one will. God has given you a precious gift if he has given you a woman. God has given you a precious gift if he has given you children. They are your blessing. They're also your responsibility, amen? I love you, men. Let me pray for you, and then I'm gonna ask you to take a seat. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fill these men with wisdom, with power, that Lord God, they would take upon themselves this great responsibility that so many in culture have simply dropped. The majority of children tonight go to bed without a father. So many women think of the men in their life as nothing but a source of pain. Lord God, I pray for the men here at the Trinity Church that we would lead humbly, lovingly, biblically, sacrificially, wisely, that we would pray with our wives, that we would pray for our wives, that we would pray with our children, that we would pray for our children, that we would make sure that God's word was opened in our home, that we would have the hard conversations with the people we love to help lead them in your purposes, and that if we have been foolish or when we have been foolish like Elimelech, that we would have the humility to apologize to them, to repent to you, to see a transformation and change in our family. And Lord God, I pray for my friends who are heading forward in a path of death as Elimelech did, that they would turn around and return to you and bring their family with them today. In Jesus' good name, amen. You men may be seated, I love you. But this is very important because what you need to understand, men, the decisions that you make, they don't just affect us. They affect our children, they affect our wife, they affect our children's children and our children's children's children. One of the most important decisions you will ever make is, where do we worship? Who are we in relationship with? And he made this horrible, fretful decision to remove his family from fellowship for 10 years with God's people. And then what we find is that his sons follow in his example. And you men need to know, your sons follow in your example. My sons follow in my example. As you read the Bible, you will see things called genealogies. These are lists of names, and we tend to just sort of skip them and read forward quickly because we don't know them. But let me tell you this, if that was your dad and your grandpa and your great-grandpa and your great-grandpa, you would pay specific and careful attention, amen? And what those are, those are called patriarchal lists. They start with the men and then they show the genealogy through the male line because the man is the head and leader of the home. Some of you will wanna argue about this. Don't argue about this, obey this. The question is not, is a man the head of his home? The question is, is he a good head or a bad head? Is there life or death under his leadership? And what happens is that it is true like father, like son. And so what we see is in some family lines, there was a man, a patriarch who loved and served God and so did his sons and so did his grandsons and so did his great grandsons. And here with Elimelech, we see just the opposite. He does not have faithfulness toward God and his sons do not practice faithfulness toward God. 
the most important thing you can give your children is an example of faith that they then adopt for their own so that your family line is one of fidelity toward God, faithfulness in relationship with God. He was thinking about feeding his family and their life. He was not thinking of spiritually feeding his family and their eternal life. And as a result, he's got two sons, Malon and Kilion. Their names literally mean something to the equivalent of sick and dying, right? So if you're looking for good Bible names for your kids, you're like, I got two boys coming. I'm gonna name them Malon and Kilion. Those are good, strong Klingon names. That sounds really good, sick and dying. And what do Malon and Kilion do? It comes to the point where they're old enough to marry. Any of you got kids that are on that threshold? I've got my oldest is a 19-year-old daughter who's a sophomore in college, and all of a sudden, boys want to take her out for fro-yo. That's where I'm at, okay? So when you reach a point that your kids are sort of approaching marriage, are you supposed to be involved in that decision at all? Yes or no, parents? Should the father be involved? For sure. A guy comes along, says, I want to date your daughter. Hey, date me first, and I'll let you know if you can meet her, okay? I'm, I'm first line of defense here. Bring me roses. I'll let you know how it goes, sweetheart. I'm, I'm going out with Tony, okay? First thing is, we love and raise our kids, and we don't just let them reach a certain age and say, well, they're adults now. They get to make their own decisions because they have no experience, and they still need their parents. You always need your parents, especially when you're making the second most important decision of your life. That is who you marry. The most important decision, of course, is who you worship. Is it okay for a believer to marry an unbeliever? Yes or no? Okay, dads, you need to say it louder than that. Is it okay, is it okay for a believer to marry an unbeliever? No. No, okay? No. You need to say it to your kids like that. Don't say like, well, let me do some research and pray about it. No. The, no, you cannot marry an unbeliever. So don't date, sleep with, get entangled with, no dating, relating, or fornicating with an unbeliever. The answer is no. Don't even turn your blinker on. You're not going that direction. The answer is no, okay? Am I clear? Is this okay? Okay, I hate to wake you guys up from your nap, but this is really important stuff because so many people get married and they're in a lot of pain and then their children grow up in that pain and then their grandchildren grow up in that pain and that pain could have been spared if they didn't get married in the first place. Here's what the Bible says about God's people marrying Moabites. Deuteronomy 7.3, you shall not, fairly clear, amen? Shall not, huh, I wonder what that means in the Hebrew. Shall not, that's what it means. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. God says, hey, no marrying Moabites. And, and the reason that people were marrying the Moabites, the Moabite gals, quite frankly, were hot. That's what the Bible says. Okay, and here's what I would say. A lot of guys are like, well, she's hot. My point, so's hell, don't marry her, right? Don't marry her, don't marry her. Deuteronomy 23.3. Okay, you get what you pay for, I'm a volunteer. Deuteronomy 23.3. Here's what God says. No Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord even to the 10th generation. So, you're, so, so here's what God says. Uh, hey, 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 hey boys, no marrying those girls. And the boys are like, well, hypothetically we do. What happens? God says, your family can't go to church for 400 years. Huh. He said, that's a long time, 10 generations. You're not allowed to go to the temple and be in God's presence and worship as God's people because this is not just a racial issue, this is a religious issue. 
This is like another economic downturn hits the valley and you take your family to some Sharia law Muslim country, you live there for 10 years and all of a sudden you let your kid marry some devout Muslim gal and that's a no. Elimelech failed. Malon failed. Kilion failed. These are not just life choices, these are failures. Now let me ask you this, how far away, I might've already told you, how far away are they from Bethlehem? 30 miles, depending on what route you take, 40 miles, 50 miles. Do you think if you're a single guy and you really want a wife who loves the Lord, that maybe you could take a week's journey to go find one? It's not impossible, amen? But so many guys, they will take whoever is in front of them rather than taking the long, hard route of God's will to find a godly woman. So all you single men stand. We're gonna do it again. All you single men stand. All you single guys stand, okay? You single men need to know it's not just looking for a good time, but a good legacy. It's not just looking for a good time, but a good legacy. Some of you, I got all the young single guys right in here, okay? Write this down, highlight it, underline it. You love God, you serve God, you worship God. You find a woman who loves God, who serves God, who worships God. And together you love and serve and worship God. And then you have children who what? Love and serve and worship God. That's the plan. And right now what we have is a whole generation of young men who are absolutely flailing and failing. For the first time in our nation's history, single women are more likely than single men to be in college, to be in church, to have a job, or even a driver's license. The average man is waiting till he's about 30 to marry, which isn't necessarily a sin, but in that time, he's doing a lot of things he shouldn't be doing with a lot of women he shouldn't be doing it with. True or false? True. You men need to be smarter than the fools. You need to understand that it's not just about a good time, it's about a good legacy. You need to understand that there will be people with your last name for generations and the, the expectation of what is normal will be set by you. If you marry a believer, they'll think that's normal. If you read your Bible, they'll think that's normal. If you pray, they'll think that's normal. If you serve the Lord, they'll think that's normal. And that sets a pattern and a precedent in your family for generations. So I need you men to covenant with me that you will not date, sleep with, live with, be engaged to, or get married to an unbelieving woman. Some of you would say, well, I want her to know the Lord. Well, then get out of the way because you're getting in the way of a relationship with Jesus. Your relationship is getting in the way of her relationship with him. And if you do love her, then send her to meet with godly women who can love her and evangelize her and care for her. And if she comes to a true relationship with Jesus and it is meant to be, then it'll be in God's will and that's fine. And it's not just God's will, it's God's timing. And until you're mature and ready, and until she loves the Lord and is mature and ready, it's not the time. And I always say this, marriage is for men, it's not for boys, and boys who marry thinking it will make them men, all it does, it gives a boy a man-sized responsibility. Okay, I love you guys. The Trinity Church is a good place for you. I'm gonna tell you some things throughout the course of the year when I open God's word that your dad should have told you, and maybe he didn't, or maybe you weren't listening but I need you to resolve in your heart. I will not do 
like Malon and Kilion. I will not just take the most attractive woman in front of me. I will not just settle for whatever is a good time. I will wait for what is a good legacy. And if I gotta walk seven to 10 days to go on a date with a gal who loves God, I'll take a seven to 10 day walk. Amen? This is so crucially important. And some of you single guys, you don't understand this, but boy, when you've got kids, how are you gonna raise a kid with a woman who doesn't pray? How are you gonna raise a kid with a woman who doesn't believe in God's word? You need to know this statistically, the, the, the marriages that are longest lasting, least likely divorce and report the greatest level of marital happiness to Christians who walk with God together. Amen. It's statistically true. I wrote a book, you can read it. There's footnotes, I'm a nerd. But the truth is, if you both love the Lord, you both submit to God's word, you both walk with the Lord, you tend to stay married, be happy and have greater intimacy and greater joy the most likely couple to divorce and have pain is where people from two different religions marry and they both try and practice their religion. She's doing Jesus, he's doing jihad, that doesn't work, okay? That does not work. Because then there's a war over what the highest authority is. Is it God's word or not? And when it comes to raising the children, how do we raise the kids? Malon and Kilion, never, never, never had children. God opens and closes the womb. God doesn't always withhold children as punishment, but I believe because these two men disobeyed the Lord, they married unbelieving women, they did what God forbid. I believe that God perhaps closed the womb of the women and didn't give them children because he doesn't want children in a home like that. So you need to know. You need to know that God wants children, they're a blessing, but he wants them in homes that are led by men who love the Lord with a woman who loves the Lord. And, and how many of you married men would agree, you can't even fathom doing life and raising children with a woman who worships a different God. Can you even imagine that, married men? Can you imagine that? Okay, let me pray for you single men. Father God, I pray for these single men. Some of these men are called to be single or remain single as you did, Lord Jesus. I pray that they would not take advantage of women. I pray that they would not pursue ungodly women. I pray that they would not act foolishly like Malon and Kilion did. Lord God, for those men who are single, I pray that they would walk in holiness and obedience and godliness, that they would practice self-control, that they would be head of their own life before they try and have a family over which to be head. I pray, Lord God, for these men not to take the path that is most convenient, but to take the path that is most glorifying to you. I pray, Lord God, that they would wait for a woman who loves you and that they would love her with your love. Lord God, I pray that they would inconvenience themselves to take the long, hard route of finding godly women. And until or unless a godly woman comes, may they practice self-control and self-discipline as we'll learn this man Boaz did a little later in the book. I pray for the single men here at the Trinity Church, Lord God, that we would be a family that would help these young men rise up to be good, godly husbands and fathers and brothers in Jesus' good name, amen. You may be seated. So we have got a free-for-all, famine, and a failure. Now we've got funerals. Elimelech dies. Malon and Kilion die. They've lived in Moab for how long? 10 years, how many of you walked away from the Lord or stopped going to church and you were gone a lot longer than you were expecting? 10 years, they've not been to church. 
Ten years, they've not heard God's word preached. Ten years, they've not prayed with God's people. Ten years, they've not sung with God's people. Elimelech has failed to lead his family. Elimelech dies, Malon dies, Kilion dies. There are no children. The family name dies. Why did they move to Moab? Why did they move to Moab? So they wouldn't die. They moved to Moab and what did they all do? Die. The key is to walk in God's will and to trust that if you're walking in God's will, you experience God's provision. And you men need to know as head of the home, you don't just make economic decisions, you make spiritual decisions. And it's not just where can I get the most income? The question is where can my family flourish? And he didn't factor those things in. And so there are three funerals. Can you imagine Naomi? She's dressed in black at her husband's funeral. She's dressed in black at her son's funeral. She's dressed in black at her other son's funeral. She's in Moab. She's not in Israel. There's no believers to pray with her. There's no women's ministry to surround her. She is absolutely left alone. Did they have a plan for the women? Did these men have a plan for their women? No, there's no plan. Orpah, a wife, Ruth, a wife, Naomi, a wife, no plan. Do you men have a plan for your women? Do you have a plan? Do you have investments? Do you have life insurance? Do you have a plan? Our goal, men, should be to love our wives even after we're gone. Even after we're gone. He had no plan. They had no plan for the women. I'll give you a story. A friend of mine some years ago, his father was in the process of dying. Christian man, Christian home, great family. A really godly man. A lot of kids and grandkids. He got sick. I think it was cancer. He was in the process of dying. He knew that his life was short. So he pulled his whole family together and he gave final instructions to his kids and grandkids. I think he had a new roof put on the home. He had the hardwood floors redone. He had the car completely maintained, new tires put on. He paid all the bills. He set up everything on auto pay. He gave his wife all of the access to all of the accounts. He wrote her love letters and he died. And every year on their anniversary, he has flowers delivered to her with the love letter after he died. He wants her to know that even though he's gone, he loves her and he cares for her and he's concerned for her. Men, we want to be like that, amen? His sons saw that and they adore their father and it transforms how they treat their wives. I hope that all of your wives, men, after you're gone, get flowers on their anniversary. Elimelech was a fool. He didn't have a plan for his wife. And what happens then, number five, they face reality. There's a point where you just gotta face reality. This is not working. This is not working. God's people in presence are over there. We're over here. 
We need to be with God's people. We need to be in God's presence. This isn't working. Let me tell you, the only place that life flourishes is in God's presence with God's people. So these women face reality. They face reality. So the story continues. And they have a necessary ending. Ruth 1, 6 through 18. It's a lot of text. We'll read it and then we'll revisit it. And faith comes by hearing the word of God. Then she arose, that is Naomi, with her daughters, Orpah and Ruth, to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had what? God's presence brings life visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord granted, grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters, three broken women. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. The girls are like, we wanna go with you. She's saying, no, you can't. She's saying, I have nothing for, I have no job. I have no money. I have no life insurance. I've got nothing. I've not been there in 10 years. I don't know what's gonna happen when I get there. Furthermore, I, I'm really not your mother-in-law anymore. My sons are dead and I don't have any other sons for you to marry and I'm barren. And even if I could add a child, you could wait 20 years so you could marry him. This isn't a plan, ladies. Let's face reality. It's over. There's a point in life where like a doctor has to just call it. Time of death, 217. It's official. Then there's mourning, an autopsy, what happened, and a funeral, and then you move on. That's what she's in the process of beginning. She's, she's like a doctor calling it. You know, September 11th at 3.15, I call our family dead. The story continues. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Any of you been in hardship and pain and thought that the Lord was the one causing it? She's struggling. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. Do you see three widows? perhaps dressed in black, having a conversation that their family is over, that their marriages are over, that their relationship is over. They're, they're devastated. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her. That's crucial. For Orpah to go back to her people means she's also going back to her religion and back to her gods. She's literally an ungodly woman. Return after your sister-in-law. Naomi is a believer telling the women to join another religion. True or false, that's not really good evangelism. <laughs> that's like anti-evangelism. Well, my God hurt me, good luck with your new God. Sometimes when we're hurting, the way we speak to unbelievers doesn't help them want to meet our God. 
But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. And here's how many of you use this scripture at your wedding, right? This is, this is, you put this on your invitation. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And that's key, your God, my God. Ruth says, Naomi, I'm not just committed to you. I'm committed to your God. This is Ruth's conversion. This is where she vows herself, not just to Naomi. It's the only believer she knows. Ruth only knows one believer that's alive on the earth in that day. It's Naomi. And Naomi's not a real awesome believer. Would you give me that? She's like, God hates me. I'm leaving. Go back to your other religion. Best of luck with that. After that great evangelistic invitation, Ruth comes forward and says, you know what? I wanna worship your God. This is pretty astonishing. Moabites don't worship the God of Israel. They're not even allowed to be in the presence of the God of Israel. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Do you think she's looking forward to her next husband? She's anticipating she's single for the rest of her life. May the Lord do so to me and more. Also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Here's what we have, a necessary ending. For good to start, bad must end. For good to start, bad must end. For good to start, bad must end. You're in a dating relationship, you're like, this ain't working, they're not walking with the Lord. I wish things would change. Well. For good to start, bad must end. I was, I was working this job, it was paying the bills, and then everything went sideways. For good to start, bad must end. There are two ways we come to a necessary ending. One, we got into something that we should have never gotten into, and so it fails. Malon and Kilion, this whole family, they shouldn't have been in Moab. They shouldn't have married Moabite women. They shouldn't have been there in the first place. So for good to start, bad must end. Sometimes something starts good and then it goes bad. Like, well, we got married and we loved each other and then my spouse ran off with somebody else and now they deny Christ and I tried, I care, I want it to work, I, I, but they're gone. Sometimes you gotta face reality need to have a necessary ending. But some of you, you'd say, but I put so much time into this and so much money into this, so much energy to, and so much of my heart into this. Well, if it's a bucket with no bottom, stop pouring. Count your losses, heal your griefs, because for good to start, bad must what? End. And so, they have what's called a closure conversation. And sometimes in relationships with people where there's time for a necessary ending, you face reality and then you have a necessary ending. Sometimes you need to have a closure conversation. You know what? I, I can't work here anymore, I quit. Um, we have been dating and I was hoping it would work out. It's not gonna work out. Let me be clear, I care about you, I'm sorry, but it's not gonna work out. I love you, I love Jesus, but if you're gonna keep running around on me, that's not okay. So either things change or this isn't gonna work. It's a closure conversation. 
what they're having here is a series of closure conversations. Naomi tries to have a closure conversation with Orpah and Ruth. We're done, you go back, I'll go here, I'll never see you again, I'll never talk to you again, we're done. Orpah says, I'm sorry, I'll miss you, I love you, she cries, and then she proceeds forward. Ruth says, no, I have to go with you. So they have a closure conversation, Ruth and Naomi do with Orpah. They also have a necessary ending with Moab. All Ruth has ever known is Moab. And she turns her back on Moab and there's closure. And she literally walks away from Moab. This is repentance. Repentance is where you've got your face towards sin and your back toward God. And you literally have a change of life. You turn your back towards sin and you turn your face toward God. That's what she does. She has a necessary ending with Moab. They have a necessary ending with Orpah. And here, Naomi doesn't know what awaits her in Jerusalem. She's not, or excuse me, in Bethlehem. She's not been there for 10 years. Ruth has no idea what it's gonna be like in Bethlehem. What she should know is that her people are not welcome there. This is like, you know, an African-American meets Jesus and then joins a white church during segregation and Jim Crow because those are the only believers they know. I mean, she's really taken a risk and they have this necessary ending. So let me ask you a couple of questions. Who or what do you need to walk away from? Who or what do you need to walk away from? Number two, what bad in your life needs to end so that good can start? What bad in your life needs to end so that good can start? And I won't make the ladies stand, but I will say this for the ladies. As I prayed for you women this week, and it's an honor to be your pastor, two things. Uh, sorry and safety. Some of the women in this room really identify with Naomi, with Ruth. You would say, yeah, some of the greatest pain I've experienced in my whole life is from men who were supposed to be safe. My dad, my grandpa, they were either not kind or they were at least complacent and indifferent. And as a result, other men harmed me. Some of the greatest pain for a woman comes with her grandfather, her father, her boyfriend, her husband, pain. I am sorry for that. And I want you to know that my goal as your pastor is to create men at the Trinity Church who are safe. They're safe. They're safe. We're gonna see a guy like that named Boaz. He's gonna show up later in the book. He is gonna be a case study for us men on how to be safe for women who have experienced pain and are vulnerable. These two women are very vulnerable. We want the Trinity Church to be a place where the men are godly and responsible and safe and where the women are safe and can heal from the wounds that they have experienced from other men. This is a huge part of my heart in ministry. It's a huge part of our marriage and family. I want it to be a huge part of our church family. For this to be a safe place for women, us men need to be safe men. We need to be wise men and generous men and godly men and noble men, and dare I say it, gentlemen. Lastly, after facing reality, having necessary endings, there is now New beginnings. For good to begin, bad must end. 
So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. That's a week or two walk through the desert, two single women, okay? How many of you wouldn't have made it to church today if you had to walk through the desert 30 to 50 miles a week or two by yourself, maybe with one friend? Our attendance would be down, amen? They're trying to get to God's presence and people, so they literally make the walk. They make the walk that the boys wouldn't make. Isn't that unbelievable? Though two boys could have made the walk and found some godly wives, they never make the walk. The two women make the walk. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. The women said, hey, Naomi's back. She said to them, do not call me Naomi. That means sweet or pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. So she goes into the DMV and changes the name on her license. So what's your name, Naomi? I'm back in town. My license is expired. I'd like to renew it. And I've had a name change. Call me, oh, my, my, old, my, my last name is woman. Uh, my middle name is old and my first name is bitter. So just put that on my driver's license, bitter old woman. That's my official legal name. For the almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Does she blame her husband? Who does she blame? God. I think she should at least blame her husband a little, amen, right? But this is what happens sometimes to women. They marry a foolish man, he causes pain in their life and they shake their finger at God. And they refuse to hold their husband accountable for the decisions he's made in failing to lead their family. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her. Here's a Moabite and a bitter old woman. How many of you men are not looking for that? You single men. You single men need to read ahead, okay? How many of you men, if you saw this ad, let's say in eHarmony or Christian Mingle, right? Uh, Widowed, non-virgin, barren, homeless woman who's the product of incest, looking for man with good job. Oh, and by the way, it's a Groupon. You also get a free, bitter, elderly mother-in-law. Oh, click, you know, I'd like to do froyo with them. <laughs> And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of what? The barley harvest. For, for, for good to begin, bad must end. They end things in Moab. They go to Bethlehem. And what they're literally doing, they're moving toward God's people and presence. If you're living a far ways away from God's people and presence, and you're waiting to be blessed, let me tell you that it doesn't happen there. You need to be in the presence of God and with the people of God because that is where God blesses. He blesses the people that are in his presence. Once they move toward God's people and they move toward God's presence, beginning, what happens is that there is the beginning of hope. And some people will say you need food, water, air, and shelter to live. And I would add hope. Here there's a little bit of hope. It says there was food and it was the beginning of harvest time. Sometimes when you're hurting and in pain and struggling, you fail to see the provision that God has made. But here they've got a new beginning. They've got a new city. They've got a new church. How many of you, this is your story. You moved to Phoenix because your life hit a rough patch. 
And we're here together as a new church. So they're in a new city and a new church. And now she's got new honesty. Now let me talk about Naomi. There's a big debate and I'll hit it briefly and we'll revisit it later. She says, I'm very hurt and I'm very bitter. Now, what Naomi is doing is she's finally being honest because she's with God's people. I'm not saying that her theology is okay or the way she views God is altogether good and right. There are a lot of categories for how we deal with people in the Bible. Sometimes it is sin and repentance. You're in sin, you need to repent. Let me give you another one that's in the Bible, brokenness and healing. Naomi is broken. She's saying, I married a believing man. My vision was we would have kids who love the Lord and then they would give me grandbabies and we would worship God together. And I haven't been to church in 10 years and my husband died and my sons died and I have no grandbabies and, and they had no plan for me and I am absolutely devastated, homeless and broke going back to town to see women that I've not seen in 10 years. And every time I go out in public, they ask, so where's your husband? He's dead. Well, aren't your sons taking care of you? They're dead. Well, how are your grandkids? We didn't get any. She's broken. She needs healing. I want you to know that my heart for the Trinity Church is that we would be a safe place for broken people to be honest so that they could be healed. She's like the Job of women in the Old Testament. Job had a couple of buddies. Job lost everything but his wife and that's the one thing he probably wished he would have lost. <laughs> she was no help at all. She just kept telling him, curse God and die. Thank you, sweetheart, for you know, all of your wise counsel. Job has two buddies. I think they were in Bible college. They come up to him and they keep saying, well, God wouldn't let this happen unless you sin. Where's the sin in your life? They never empathized with him. They never sympathized with him. They never sat with him. They never wept with him. They never consoled him. They didn't understand brokenness and healing. Naomi's gonna need some people who understand I'm hurting, I'm venting, I'm talking, I'm processing. I need time for healing. Okay. My hope and my prayer for our church family is that we would receive hurting people as these women received Naomi. She felt safe enough to be honest. Now her heart's not in a good place, but it's in an honest place. And if you begin in an honest place, you can get to a good place. Some of you are here today and you're broken. You need to be in God's presence and with God's people so that there can be healing. So then, what we see here is the beginning of hope. Let me give you the key interpretive issue for the story of Ruth. I wanna use an analogy. Think of God as working through two hands. One hand is his visible hand of miracle. Sometimes God will do supernatural things. It's like he just puts his finger into human history all of a sudden the Red Sea parts for Moses and there's manna on the ground every morning for the children of Israel. And dead people rise and sick people are healed and extraordinary things happen. That's God's visible hand of miracle. 
to use this analogy, God has an invisible hand of providence. In the book of Ruth, God doesn't show up and say anything. There's no miracle. There is the invisible hand of God's providence. Providence is that God is sovereign and God is good like a father. That he pays attention to his kids, he cares for his kids, he provides for his kids. And you could start to see it here. In God's providence, the two women return to Bethlehem. In God's providence, Naomi is honest and women in a healing community surround her to serve her. In God's providence, there's now food in Bethlehem and it's the beginning of God's provision. In God's providence, it is the beginning of harvest season. That doesn't mean that everything's okay, but it means that everything is beginning to become okay. Here's what I need you to know, that even when life is hard and dark and you're struggling and suffering, and you can't get much more bleak than funerals and famines, amen? That God is still sovereign and good. And you may not hear his voice, you may not see his miracle, but you need to keep your eyes open because his invisible hand of providence is still at work in your life. That he is still providing a way forward. He is still bringing relationships. He is still opening an opportunity. And if you will walk in obedience, there is a path forward toward healing and toward life. And all of this happens very curiously in a day when there is no king in a town called Bethlehem. And ultimately a king was born. His name is Jesus. I don't wanna give it away, so come back. Jesus actually descends from Ruth. Keep reading the book, it's awesome. And he is born where? Bethlehem. And he's the bread of life. He heals the brokenhearted. And what happens is that Ruth and Naomi are suffering because of the sins of others. And Jesus, this king and bread of life is born in Bethlehem. And there we see that he grows up to suffer for the sins of others. So the whole story is leaning toward the coming of Jesus. I want you to enjoy God's presence today. I want you to be with God's people today. I want you to bring your hopes and your fears and your failures and your faults and your flaws and your frustrations to God. Like Naomi, I want you to be honest. We wanna be a healing community and place for you so that together we could see God's providence provide for us, protect us and provide a path forward. Father God, I thank you for an opportunity to teach your word today here at the Trinity Church. Lord God, I thank you that this is the most honest book, the Bible that's ever been written and that herein we find one of the most honest pages in the book of Ruth. Lord God, we live in a day in a world where people see each other and we ask, how are you doing? I'm fine. And then we pretend like we care and we move on. Lord, I thank you that the book starts with honesty, that it starts with the revelation of the pain of life lived apart from God. And so Lord God, I pray for us as a people that we would seek your presence, that we would seek relationships with your people. And that like Naomi, we would be honest about our pain. 
Lord God, for those men who are here, I pray that we would learn from the tragic negative example of Elimelech and Malon and Kilion. I pray for the women, Lord God, who have been hurt by men, that they would go to you as their father and Jesus Christ as their big brother. And there they would find a safe relationship, protection, provision, and a place of healing. I pray, Lord God, as well for those who are new to the valley, I pray that we would welcome them as the women welcomed Naomi and Ruth. I pray for us, Lord God, as a people, that this church would be a healing place for the brokenhearted. I pray that it would be an honest place for those who are hurting. I pray that the men would love and lead their families and homes well. I pray that the women would flourish and that you would entrust to us children that we could raise to be servants of the only God. Lord, I pray for us as we come to worship you now, that we would enjoy your healing presence, that we would be together as your people, that we would come with gratitude, that we didn't need to walk for a week or two through the desert to get here. And as we partake of communion, that we would remember the Lord Jesus Christ born in Bethlehem, come to us as the bread of life to bring healing and to open our eyes to see the providence of God at work in our lives in Jesus' name. Amen.